STORY VI. OF YOUTH AND THE BRIGHT MEDUSA, AND THE TROLL GARDEN, BY WILLA CATHER. THIS LIBRIVOX RECORDING IS IN THE PUBLIC DOMAIN. STORY VI. A WAGNER MATINEE. I received one morning a letter, written in pale ink on glassy blue-lined note-paper, and bearing the postmark of a little Nebraska village. This communication, worn and rubbed, looking as if it had been carried for some days in a coat-pocket that was none too clean, was from my Uncle Howard, and informed me that his wife had been left a small legacy by a bachelor relative, and that it would be necessary for her to go to Boston to attend to the settling of the estate. He requested me to meet her at the station, and render her whatever services might be necessary. On examining the date indicated as that of her arrival, I found it to be no later than to-morrow. He had characteristically delayed writing until, had I been away from home for a day, I must have missed my aunt altogether. The name of my aunt Georgiana opened before me a gulf of recollection so wide and deep that, as the letter dropped from my hand, I felt suddenly a stranger to all the present conditions of my existence, wholly ill at ease and out of place amid the familiar surroundings of my study. I became, in short, the gangling farmer-boy my aunt had known, scourged with chilblains and bashfulness, my hands cracked and sore from the corn-husking. I sat again before her parlour organ, fumbling the scales with my stiff red fingers, while she, beside me, made canvas mittens for the huskers. The next morning, after preparing my landlady for a visitor, I set out for the station. When the train arrived I had some difficulty in finding my aunt. She was the last of the passengers to alight, and it was not until I got her into the carriage that she seemed really to recognize me. She had come all the way in a day-coach, her linen duster had become black with soot, and her black bonnet grey with dust during the journey. When we arrived at my boarding-house the landlady put her to bed at once, and I did not see her again until the next morning. Whatever shock Mrs. Springer experienced at my aunt's appearance she considerately concealed. As for myself, I saw my aunt's battered figure with that feeling of awe and respect with which we behold explorers who have left their ears and fingers north of Franz Joseph land, or their health somewhere along the upper Congo. My aunt Georgiana had been a music-teacher at the Boston Conservatory, somewhere back in the latter sixties. One summer, while visiting in the little village among the green mountains where her ancestors had dwelt for generations, she had kindled the callow fancy of my uncle, Howard Carpenter, then an idle, shiftless boy of twenty-one. When she returned to her duties in Boston, Howard followed her, and the upshot of this infatuation was that she eloped with him, eluding the reproaches of her family and the criticism of her friends by going with him to the Nebraska frontier. Carpenter, who of course had no money, took up a homestead in Red Willow County, fifty miles from the railroad. There they had measured off their land themselves, 
driving across the prairie in a wagon to the wheel of which they had tied a red cotton handkerchief and counting its revolutions they built a dugout in the red hillside one of those cave dwellings whose inmates so often reverted to primitive conditions their water they got from the lagoons where the buffalo drank and their slender stock of provisions was always at the mercy of bands of roving indians for thirty years my aunt had not been farther than fifty miles from the homestead i owed to this woman most of the good that ever came my way in my boyhood and had a reverential affection for her during the years when i was riding herd for my uncle my aunt after cooking the three meals the first of which was ready at six o'clock in the morning and putting the six children to bed would often stand until midnight at her ironing board with me at the kitchen table beside her hearing me recite latin declensions and conjugations gently shaking me when my drowsy head sank down over a page of irregular verbs it was to her at her ironing or mending that i read my first shakespeare and her old textbook on mythology was the first that ever came into my empty hands she taught me my scales and exercises on the little parlor organ which her husband had bought her after fifteen years during which she had not so much as seen a musical instrument she would sit beside me by the hour darning and counting while i struggled with the joyous farmer she seldom talked to me about music and i understood why once when i had been doggedly beating out some easy passages from an old score of urante i had found among her music-books she came up to me and putting her hands over my eyes gently drew my head backward upon her shoulder saying tremulously don't love it so well clark or it may be taken from you when my aunt appeared on the morning after her arrival in boston she was still in a semi-somnambulant state she seemed not to realize that she was in the city where she had spent her youth the place longed for hungrily half a lifetime she had been so wretchedly train-sick throughout the journey that she had no recollection of anything but her discomfort and to all intents and purposes there were but a few hours of nightmares between the farm at red willow county and my study on newbury street i had planned a little pleasure for her that afternoon to repay her for some of the glorious moments she had given me when we used to milk together in the straw-thatched cowshed and she because i was more than usually tired or because her husband had spoken sharply to me would tell me of the splendid performance of the huguenots she had seen in paris in her youth at two o'clock the symphony orchestra was to give a wagner program and i intended to take my aunt though as i conversed with her i grew doubtful about her enjoyment of it i suggested our visiting the conservatory and the common before lunch but she seemed altogether too timid to wish to venture out she questioned me absently about various changes in the city but she was chiefly concerned that she had forgotten to leave instructions about feeding half-skimmed milk to a certain weakling calf old maggie's calf you know clark she explained evidently having forgotten how long i had been away she was further troubled because she had neglected to tell her daughter about the freshly opened kit of mackerel in the cellar 
which would spoil if it were not used directly. I asked her whether she had ever heard any of the Wagnerian operas, and found that she had not, though she was perfectly familiar with their respective situations, and had once possessed the piano score of the Flying Dutchman. I began to think it would be best to get her back to Red Willow County without waking her, and regretted having suggested the concert. From the time we entered the concert hall, however, she was a trifle less passive and inert, and for the first time seemed to perceive her surroundings. I had felt some trepidation, lest she might become aware of her queer country clothes, or might experience some painful embarrassment at stepping suddenly into the world to which she had been dead for a quarter of a century. But again I found how superficially I had judged her. She sat looking about her with eyes as impersonal, almost as stony, as those with which the granite Rameses in a museum watches the froth and fret that ebbs and flows about his pedestal. I have seen this same aloofness in old miners who drift into the brown hotel at Denver, their pockets full of bullion, their linen soiled, their haggard faces unshaven standing in the thronged corridors as solitary as though they were still in a frozen camp on the Yukon. The matinee audience was made up chiefly of women. One lost the contour of faces and figures, indeed any effect of line whatever, and there was only the color of bodices past counting, the shimmer of fabrics soft and firm, silky and sheer. Red, mauve, pink, blue, lilac, purple, ecru, rose, yellow, cream, and white, all the colors that an impressionist finds in a sunlit landscape, with here and there the dead shadow of a frock coat. My Aunt Georgiana regarded them as though they had been so many daubs of tube-paint on a palette. When the musicians came out and took their places she gave a little stir of anticipation, and looked with quickening interest down over the rail at that invariable grouping, perhaps the first wholly familiar thing that had greeted her eye since she had left old Maggie and her weakling calf. I could feel how all those details sank into her soul, for I had not forgotten how they had sunk into mine when I came fresh from ploughing forever and forever between green aisles of corn where, as in a treadmill, one might walk from daybreak to dusk without perceiving a shadow of change. The clean profiles of the musicians, the gloss of their linen, the dull black of their coats, the beloved shapes of the instruments, the patches of yellow light on the smooth varnished bellies of the cellos and the bass viols in the rear, the restless wind-tossed forest of fiddle-necks and bows, I recalled how, in the first orchestra I ever heard, those long bow-strokes seemed to draw the heart out of me as a conjurer's stick reels out yards of paper ribbon from a hat. The first number was the Tannhäuser Overture. When the horns drew out the first strain of the Pilgrim's Chorus, Aunt Georgiana clutched my coat-sleeve. Then it was I first realized that for her this broke a silence of thirty years. 
with the battle between the two motives with the frenzy of the venusberg theme and its ripping of strings there came to me an overwhelming sense of the waste and wear we are so powerless to combat and i saw again the tall naked house on the prairie black and grim as a wooden fortress the black pond where i had learned to swim its margin pitted with sun-dried cattle tracks the rain-gullied clay banks about the naked house the four dwarf ash seedlings where the dishcloths were always hung to dry before the kitchen door the world there was the flat world of the ancients to the east a cornfield that stretched to daybreak to the west a corral that reached to sunset between the conquests of peace dearer bought than those of war the overture closed my aunt released my coat sleeve but she said nothing she sat staring dully at the orchestra what i wondered did she get from it she had been a good pianist in her day i knew and her musical education had been broader than that of most music teachers of a quarter of a century ago she had often told me of mozart's operas and meyerbeer's and i could remember hearing her sing years ago certain melodies of verdi when i had fallen ill with a fever in her house she used to sit by my cot in the evening when the cool night wind blew in through the faded mosquito netting tacked over the windows and i lay watching a certain bright star that burned red above the cornfield and sing home to our mountain o oh, let us return in a way fit to break the heart of a vermont boy near dead of homesickness already i watched her closely through the prelude to tristan and isolde trying vainly to conjecture what that seething turmoil of strings and winds might mean to her but she sat mutely staring at the violin bows that drove obliquely downward like the pelting streaks of rain in a summer shower had this music any message for her had she enough left to at all comprehend this power which had kindled the world since she had left it i was in a fever of curiosity but aunt georgiana sat silent upon her peak in darien she preserved this utter immobility throughout the number from the flying dutchman though her fingers worked mechanically upon her black dress as if of themselves they were recalling the piano score they had once played poor hands they had been stretched and twisted into mere tentacles to hold and lift and knead with on one of them a thin worn band that had once been a wedding ring as i pressed and gently quieted one of those groping hands i remembered with quivering eyelids their services for me in other days soon after the tenor began the prize song i heard a quick-drawn breath and turned to my aunt her eyes were closed but the tears were glistening on her cheeks and i think in a moment more they were in my eyes as well it never really died then the soul which can suffer so excruciatingly and so interminably it withers to the outward eye only like that strange moss which can lie on a dusty shelf half a century and yet if placed in water grows green again 
She wept so throughout the development and elaboration of the melody. During the intermission before the second half, I questioned my aunt and found that the prize song was not new to her. Some years before, there had drifted to the farm in Red Willow County a young German, a tramp cowpuncher, who had sung in the chorus at Bayreuth when he was a boy, along with the other peasant boys and girls. Of a Sunday morning, he used to sit on his gingham-sheeted bed in the hand's bedroom, which opened off the kitchen, cleaning the leather of his boots and saddle, singing the prize song, while my aunt went about her work in the kitchen. She had hovered over him until she had prevailed upon him to join the country church, though his sole fitness for this step, in so far as I could gather, lay in his boyish face and his possession of this divine melody. Shortly afterward he had gone to town on the 4th of July, been drunk for several days, lost his money in a faro-table, ridden a saddled Texas steer on a bet, and disappeared with a fractured collar-bone. All this my aunt told me huskily, wanderingly, as though she were talking in the weak lapses of illness. Well. We have come to better things than the old trovatore at any rate, Aunt Georgie, I queried, with a well-meant effort at jocularity. Her lip quivered, and she hastily put her handkerchief up to her mouth. From behind it she murmured, And you have been hearing this ever since you left me, Clark? Her question was the gentlest and saddest of reproaches. The second half of the program consisted of four numbers from the ring, and closed with Siegfried's funeral march. My aunt wept quietly, but almost continuously, as a shallow vessel overflows in a rainstorm. From time to time her dim eyes looked up at the lights, burning softly under their dull glass globes. The deluge of sound poured on and on. I never knew what she found in the shining current of it. I never knew how far it bore her, or past what happy islands. From the trembling of her face I could well believe that before the last number she had been carried out where the myriad graves are, into the grey, nameless burying-grounds of the sea, or into some world of death vaster yet, where from the beginning of the world hope has lain down with hope and dream with dream, and renouncing, slept. The concert was over. The people filed out of the hall, chattering and laughing, glad to relax and find the living level again. But my kinswoman made no effort to rise. The harpist slipped the green felt cover over his instrument. The flute-players shook the water from their mouthpieces. The men of the orchestra went out one by one, leaving the stage to the chairs and music-stands, empty as a winter cornfield. I spoke to my aunt. She burst into tears and sobbed pleadingly, I don't want to go, Clark, I don't want to go. I understood. For her, just outside the concert hall, lay the black pond with the cattle-tracked bluffs, the tall, unpainted house with weather-curled boards, naked as a tower, the crook-backed ash seedlings where the ditch-claws hung to dry, 
the gaunt, molting turkeys picking up refuse about the kitchen door. End of story six.